0: happy guy Then he ate a molded pumpkin pie
1: then he thought that he just couldn't
0: die so then he
1: laughed so all Hello, and welcome to episode 4-445 of the Run Run Live podcast. How are we doing? And by the time this podcast tickles your inner ears, it will be the shortest day of the year up here in New England. Yep, it might even be after the holidays, right? That scenario when someone bought you a new audio device or a phone, and you've downloaded some podcasts, and you're listening to see what you like, and sure enough, you find this weird old dude who runs a lot and has a dog and rambles on and on and on about things that no one really cares about and then says something like, hey, that was a 71-word sentence. Vladimir Nabokov would be proud. Yep, you new listeners can bail out now because it's not going to get any better. This week, we talked to Mark Agnew, who is the extreme sports reporter in Hong Kong for the South China Morning Post. No kidding. A real honest-to-goodness expat living in Hong Kong and covering the ultra-running scene. So, super interesting. Not the kind of stuff you can make up. In Section 1, we talk about running in the snow, because, yeah, I've been running in the snow. Write about what you know, is what someone said, so there you have it. In section two, I'm going to talk about the importance of a positive aspect. Now, aspect is not a good old English word. I know, it's Latin. It's from the Latin. And you might recognize that Latin root, the second part of it, spec, like spectacles. So aspect means to look. Or, in the case I'm using it, the sense I'm using it, appearance. Anyhow, it's been a fairly uneventful couple of weeks since we last spoke. Uh, yeah, I'm still in house arrest here in the COVID times. I had a good higher volume week uh, and got five runs in last week. And I did them all on the trails with Ollie, so it only added up to like 30 mid-30s. Uh, in terms of miles, but if I had been running those out on the roads, it would have been a lot longer. It would have been maybe a mid-40s mile week, which is pretty high for me. We got a nice big dump of dry snow this week, somewhere around a foot and a half. Yay! It's hard to tell because the storm had these 30-plus mile-an-hour winds, so the snow wasn't evenly distributed, right? Right. And I haven't been out running in this new snow yet, but I have gone for a couple of hikes with Ollie. And it's it's pretty hard going. It's It's been packed down already by the folks, you know, because there's so much traffic in the woods. It's been packed down by the cross-country skiers and the snowshoers and even some snowmobiles in places. So I think I'll go out and run on that today with Ollie. He gets the little snowballs stuck between his toes with this kind of snow (laughs) so he doesn't like it that much he's not a big fan of snow it got cold and it stayed cold so we woke up to three degrees fahrenheit saturday morning this weekend and it's amazing how fast you adapt to the cold weather you know it's just so bright and so dry with the snow down and it's also acoustically amazing You can hear sounds traveling for miles in the dry air. And the coyotes were out this weekend as well. They were singing in the woods pretty close to the house. Clear as a bell. And Ollie was freaking out. He wanted to get out of the house and go have a go at them. Or join them, maybe. I don't know. He's a bit of a free spirit, that dog. And that son of a gun has taken to ambushing me on the trails again. I think this is a Border Collie thing. Buddy, my, my old dog, did it too. But Ollie is a bit aggressive. He'll pounce on me and give me a nip if I'm not paying attention. And I don't think he's trying to hurt me, but his big old velociraptor jaws are leaving me with vampire bites on my thighs. So I've taken to carrying a small stick with me, so I can swat him with it when he moves in for an ambush. What the Southerners would call a SWITCH. And maybe for some of you, I'm bringing back bad memories of someone having a switch taken to them. So switch is a nice old German word, right? It means long, thin stick. Maybe I should have used the word crop, like a riding crop. Crop is another old German word. And I think we're seeing a pattern here. Lots of swatting going on with those old Germans. But anyhow, I can give him a little swat and it keeps him from biting me. I read an article about a woman who died from a dog bite. Her dog bit her and she died. She got the flesh eating bacteria. Yikes. But what I'm really worried about is turning into a were collie. And uh, by the way, were is an Anglo Saxon word for man. So werewolf is liter- literally man wolf. So I'm afraid of turning into a were collie. If I were to turn into a were collie, some morning, on a full moon, a collie moon, I might wake up with an urge to go on long runs in the woods and chase frisbees and get my belly rubbed and roll in dead animals and have a strange, odd fascination for sheep. Hey, wait a second. Oh, my God, I'm... A collie No, just kidding. That's not true. I hardly ever roll in dead animals. On with the show.
0: It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength.
1: Oh, the weather outside is frightful. Snow running. I'm going to do a little recap here because I ran a bunch of miles in the woods this week, both during daylight hours and in the dark, and I ran during a major storm that plastered everything with a couple inches of hard crunchy snow and ice. I ran after the major storm on top of that crunchy snow and ice, and I ran as it melted too. And I find it easier just to keep running outside through the winter. You know, sometimes it's a bit more challenging... But for the most part, that challenge is in your head. Your body adapts to the cold and dark pretty quickly. And the snow is usually manageable. Here in New England, I'm usually running in a temperature band of zero Fahrenheit to just over freezing. Typically, it's in the 20s or 30s. So cold, but not terrible. I think our all-time low that we went out running in was minus 12 Fahrenheit. So I know some people will hide in the confines of their houses when the trails pick up a little snow. And maybe they'll just stop running for the season. Maybe they'll switch to an indoor trainer or a treadmill. You know, they're afraid to venture out into the elements when it gets cold and snowy. But I am here to tell you, you don't have to. You can keep running in the winter conditions. And as long as you understand what you're getting yourself into, you'll be fine. So let's cover a couple of things, a little recap for you. First, we'll go through that ever popular question of what about those shoes? What do I do on my feet in these precarious winter conditions? And second, we'll talk a little bit about how I dress. And finally, sort of, you know, what to expect. But before we get to that tactical stuff, let's talk about the conditions you may find. And like I said, we had a storm where it rained hard for a couple hours, switched over to a heavy, wet snow for a couple hours and then got cold, stayed cold, and that produces a specific set of conditions. There are lots of different conditions you can encounter where you are. This is just one of them, but this produced a hard, crusty snow. Like everything had been sprayed with ceramic, and the dog hated it because it hurt his feet, but it was actually great for running. It had just enough give to it to get good traction, And it smoothed out the normally technical trails with a nice layer of runnable crunchiness. It was like somebody had paved the trails. And this isn't always the case. I mean, if you get the dry snow like we have now with the colder weather, it's a bit harder to run in. It's like running on the beach in soft sand. You have to lift up your foot, up and out of the snow, then plant it back down through the snow. And on the foot plant, it gives and it slips, so you lose a lot of energy. It's hard work. And I think the worst kind of snow that is really not runnable in is when you get a deep snow, let's say six inches plus, and then you get a hard crust on top of it from the freezing rain that isn't strong enough to support your weight. So this is almost impossible to run in because you stand on it and then you post hole through the crust with every stride and then you have to pull your foot back out through the crust on the forward step. So deep snow is pretty challenging, too. You can run in it, but it's challenging. Anything over six to eight inches, uh, and you can't get your stride going because of all the post postholing and lifting. And for this deep snow, you may want to invest in a pair of snowshoes or cross-country skis. I mean, you can still get out in it, but it's pretty exhausting to try to run through. It's a great workout, but at some point, it's not. it's not running anymore. When I say you can still get out and run in the snow and ice, I primarily mean normal, easy runs. Any kind of speed work or other workout is really going to be a stretch. You can certainly drive your heart rate up, but you can't get that faster, clean running motion. And if you have to plant your foot with force, you know, like to navigate a sharp corner, it gets pretty dicey and you'll end up on your backside seeing stars or, or hurt yourself. So, let's talk a little bit about footwear then. For most of my snow running, I just use whatever trail shoes I'm already running in. That's right, gasp! You don't do anything special? Nope. So, I'm currently running in Hoka Speedgoats for my trails, and they have a nice aggressively lugged outsole, big knobbies on them, that they grip pretty well in all kinds of conditions, including snow and ice. And depending on the conditions, I may just wear an old pair of road shoes that I don't mind getting wet. You know, your previous pair of road shoes. So my point is, you can run the snow and ice in the shoes you already have. And again, it depends on how severe the snow is, but for anything less than a couple hours, your regular shoes will be just fine. They're going to get wet, but they're just fine. Now, you can, if you want to, Do the old wood screws in the shoes trick. Look on YouTube if you don't know what I'm talking about. If you're an engineer type, you like this sort of thing, uh, and plan to run in really icy conditions. You know, I tried this and found it was really more hassle than it was worth for me. You can also get any number of those strap-on gripper things like yak tracks, and yeah, they work. They work fine. And in some conditions, they can really make a difference. But again, having run in them all, I find it's just one more thing to hassle with. Don't get me wrong, they work. But I also find they tend to make you overconfident. When the snow starts getting deep enough, you can wear your gaiters you know, around your ankles to keep the snow out of your shoes. That helps. And most trail runners will have gaiters laying around somewhere. I just wear my normal running socks, the thin ones. I've never had my feet get cold. Even when the snow gets down into the shoes, as long as I keep moving, I'm okay. So how do you run in your normal shoes in the snow? Well, like everything else, it comes down to maintaining good running form. Your foot will lose traction when it hits the ground with a shearing force. And that's only going to happen if you overstride and come down on your heel, or otherwise land with a wonky stride. If you keep your form clean and land lightly on the mid-front of the foot, there's less shear force. And snow running is a lot like regular trail running, in that you're landing with a light and loose foot plant. So you're essentially testing the ground as you land on it. And if something goes wrong, like an ankle starts to roll or you lose traction, you have enough quickness in your cadence so that you can quickly shift to the next stride and avoid planting full weight on that troublesome landing surface. And what I typically wear for clothes is a technical long-sleeve shirt and then a fleece sweater over that. And it's not a special fleece sweater for running. It's any thick fleece sweater will do. I do have some running-specific winter gear, and it works well. There's nothing wrong with it, but I like the fleece sweater. I have various pairs of running gloves because my hands do tend to get cold, but when it drops below freezing, I wear a big pair of mittens, right? These aren't running mittens. These are just big, like, snow-shoveling mittens. I also have a bunch of hats, fuzzy winter hats of different thicknesses and styles that I'll wear depending on the, the temperature, Uh, You might want to consider some safety orange winter gear, especially the hat, if you're in in an area with hunters when you go out in the woods. And when it drops below, let's say freezing, I'll typically throw on the winter, the running tights. And I have friends who never wear tights. They are running shorts when it's below zero all winter long, to each his own. (laughs) I also have a couple neck gaiters that are very handy in the apocalypse now. Because they can keep you warm and you can pull them up when you pass people as an impromptu mask. So I've got over 40 miles in the trails since it snowed last week. And I've actually fallen less in the snow. Why? Probably because I'm running mindfully because of the snow. And that's my main message for you. Don't be afraid of going out in the snow and the cold and the ice. It probably won't kill you. You don't need any special equipment. You just need to slow down and watch your form. And there's nothing really as invigorating as being out in the woods on a crisp winter night and looking up at those stars literally popping out of the dry sky. And all is silent except for your own breath and your own heartbeat and the steam rising off your sweater. It's primal. It'll make you feel alive. Give it a try. And now for today's featured interview. Mark, why don't you give us the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and, and why we're talking, how we met.
0: Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, I think we met on LinkedIn, um, of all places. There you go. I'm Mark, Mark Agnew. I uh, live out here in Hong Kong, but I'm actually from Scotland. Despite my accent, I sound English. I spent most of my life saying I'm not English. And uh, now I work as the outdoor and extreme sports editor for the South China Morning Post, which is the newspaper in Hong Kong, um, which means I cover a lot of running, a lot of trail running. And outside of work, I do a bit of trail running myself. I'm not very good at it, but I do all sorts of outsource outdoor sports from rock climbing to ocean rowing, ultra running, trail running. All sorts of things that basically put me through a degree of punishment for fun.
1: Yeah, we got a good internet connection here, so this is this is working out well. Yeah, and considering that you're coming from the future, you're talking to me from the future. How is the future?
0: Oh well, I, I could tell you, uh, twelve hours ahead and overnight, you're in for a real turmoil. It's going to go south so quickly. <laughs> Thirteen hours ahead. Yeah,
1: I'm super interested. I've traveled, like I said, I've traveled in Asia and. Tokyo, China, India, a little bit for work. But I also have seen inklings of sort of a, a generation of new endurance athletes coming out of these places as they start to evolve a middle class with some free time and that sort of thing. So give me the state of the state. I, and I know when I say Asia, that's like saying Africa, it's like yeah,
0: yeah, 14 well, countries and... Yeah, yeah, but you know, there's definitely some common themes. I mean, in Hong Kong, uh, there is a huge ultra running scene. Obviously, there's always been a wealthy middle class here. But, uh, so I think there's been trail and ultra running around for at least since the 80s which was when the big uh, first one started called the Oxfam Trailwalker, But over the last 10 years, similar to like a global trend, trail running has exploded here. Now, between October and March, any weekend you could sign up to one of four or five ultra or trail races, and the, most of them are sold out. At the UTMB, which the Ultra, ultra Trail Mont Blanc, which yep. is one of the, uh, the biggest races of the calendar in the world, most people are from France, Germany, Italy. But usually, fourth or fifth most amount of people are from Hong Kong, which oh, is uh, insane. <laughs> Not just because we're on the other side of the world, but seven million people, and we managed to match the amount of runners that. 70 million or 80 million might have in Germany. And that's just as a result of a number of things. The the most obvious one is in Hong Kong, it's incredibly accessible. Everybody thinks of Hong Kong as this skyline with this densely populated urban areas, but they are very dense and very compact. And then right next to those urban areas are mountains. And 40% of the country is country parks. So people can get out very easily. I can run out of my door and be running up a mountain in 10 minutes that's amazing yeah it's so cool you get, you get these incredible views especially at night where you're like on a, a cliff edge on a mountain and you're looking down onto like hong kong and you look the other way and you're looking into like pitch dark uh country parks it's really really cool so every weekend there are like thousands and thousands of trail runners but then in a wider more asia where it's not necessarily always had as you said the middle class to support this kind of thing. In China in particular, it's exploding because uh, there's that middle class, but also because um, it's becoming a living for trail runners. And uh, if you would compare it to something like runners in Kenya, where it's not just that people like to run or not like to run, it's more a roofed out of poverty. It's becoming similar in China because there are so many athletes and now there's quite a lot of money in it. So these trail runners that you see in China who are going across to the likes of the UTMB and winning some of those races, they tend to be put into these sports boarding schools as kids, which uh, the government fund to uh, find the next marathon runner for the Olympics. And if you don't make the cut, then you're sort of cast aside. But not making the cut can still mean you're an exceptional athlete with now a professional background. And a lot of those people are now going into trail running. So they're taking Mm -hmm. that experience, that training, and they're Transferring it into trail running, and then there's such a, and then there's quite a lot of money in prize money in in China, so they can support themselves by going from race to race, winning, and uh, also get obviously getting sponsorship, which is why they're now beginning to appear on international races in Hong Kong. They, over the last few years, have started popping down to the Hong Kong Hundred and absolutely dominating that, or or going across the UTMBs we've seen the last couple of years so in China it's uh, I think in the next few years we're going to see a lot of very very good runners coming out of there with professional backgrounds and uh, serious athletic ability and like a professional sort of backing from their uh, sponsors and their prize money that allows them to train full time
1: so Mark If I was to wander down there with my New York City or Boston or Chicago marathon jacket to the local running club, would these folks know what was going on?
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, certainly in Hong Kong, it's a very international city with a very high GDP. So a lot of people fly abroad to take part in these marathons all over the world or trail races all over the world, all over Asia. So they Uh they would know. But uh, I'm not so sure across the border in Hong in China. Most of my work in China is done by one of our freelancers called Pavel Toropov. He feeds me a lot of information that I'm feeding you. So, but he says there are huge running clubs there. Like he sends me pictures, yeah, right. class, even if it's just track sessions or whatever, they're, they're big running clubs. I'm sure yeah. they've had the likes of the Boston Marathon.
1: So I think there's also sort of a health and fitness realization going on as well, right? Because as they westernize the the diet and the lifestyle, they realize how bad that is for you. Mm. and. Then- There's that push as well. And then once people start, they start at the same reason anybody else would start to lose weight or to get in shape. It turns into a passion, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's all part of the trend of uh, like a growing middle class where increased access to information and levels of education and uh, free time and free money all Feed into healthier lifestyles. So,
1: I don't want to get you dragged away in the night, but what's the Chinese government think of all this? They're actually funding these sort of uh, running farms.
0: These sports state schools are for, I assume, Olympic sports, which is why these kids are being brought in as runners for Olympic sports. And only when they don't make the cut do they go across the trail running because it's relatively low hanging fruit to make money. But a lot of them are swinging back into uh, marathon running as well. And uh, the guy who won the OCC a couple of years ago, or came second to the OCC, he's just won the Shanghai Marathon, I think. And uh, But then the interesting thing about how they're funding trail running is the government get a province or, or an area might get two funds, one for investing in hard infrastructure and one for investing in soft infrastructure the hard being improving roads, plumbing, whatever. And soft is pretty widely interpreted. So they have this budget and if they don't spend it, they don't get it next year. And they think, right, let's just put on a trail race. We're in the middle of nowhere. And you can get these bizarre races where they have like 400 volunteers, a huge starting area with fireworks and like speakers and bands and then like <laughs> 50 runners or something like that. And yeah, I know, yeah. I know that um, there's like a sort of a few WeChat groups, which is the Chinese version of WhatsApp. With uh, local Hong Kong runners, and they are quite keen to sort of just get a foreign face in their race. And they might just like message and say, like, all right, 10 days' time, we'll fly you up to some some random province. Anybody free will put you there. So, yeah, suddenly 50 runners. And that's where then the prize money comes in as well. And that's been going on for about 10 years. I'd be years, all in.
1: That, those are my favorite kind of races, right? Yeah, exactly. You, and you show uh, up I've, in the middle of nowhere and run 50 miles yeah, in the woods. I'd be
0: desperately trying to get myself in one of these we chat groups. They'd be disappointed if they flew me up and suddenly I you get this sort of mammoth giraffe lobbering through their uh, their trail run. Yeah, but that's yeah, it's super interesting. But uh, I think initially when they started doing that about 10 years ago, they gave a lot of prize money because they were trying to attract people. But now that it's popular in and of itself, and they realize they don't necessarily need to give such high prize money to attract people to run. The prize money has ironically come down as a sport's grown, but uh, oh, wow. there's still that kind of similar model as far as I can tell.
1: So what are like the top five races across the spectrum? If you ask somebody in my neck of the woods, they'd probably say the Great Wall Marathon, right?
0: Hmm. That's oh, yeah. the one they see advertised all the time. Yeah, I went, well, there's actually two bi- uh, Great War Marathons. One's sort of organized by a travel company, so it's advertised a lot abroad, and I think another one is quite popular in the local population. Yeah, well, the big races, it depends what you mean. I, my world is trail and ultra running, and the biggest races in Asia would be the Hong Kong 100, which is on the Ultra Trail World Tour, the Ultra Marathon, Mount Fuji, which is also on the Ultra Rail, w- World yep. Tour, and then the UTMB. Is creating these by UTMB races where they're sort of franchising their races around the world now. And I, said, I believe okay, they're making okay. a lot of money off it. And what and there's two in China, Gauli Gong and Panda Trail, and there's one in Thailand, the Thailand by, by UTMB. So they would probably have the biggest international recognition because they've got that, that brand. And I assume they're on the Ultra World Tour as well. But I'm not- So confused. were they like
1: qualifiers <laughs> for UTMB?
0: They're races of themselves. But recently they've also started, if you want to enter the UTMB, you have to have a certain amount of points. I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly how it works. It was incredibly complicated, but they've replaced, they've added points and then they've added stones. And if you collect enough stones, you get an automatic entry. You don't have to go through the lottery. And if you enter one of their UTMB races, like a Gowling Gong, then you get sort of a double the amount of stones. So uh, they're sort of enc- encouraging people to enter their own races so they can enter their own races, which is a great business model. It sounds
1: <laughs> very uh, Tolkien-esque with the collecting stones.
0: Yeah. If you complete one of the 100-mile races in one of their buy utmb races, which is in South America, Oman, Thailand, two in China, et cetera, then you get enough stones automatically that you just get the lottery and you can go straight into the uh, UTMB in France. Uh, if you one of the shorter races you might have to do 250k's or or something i can't remember exactly what the map map is but uh basically encourages you to keep entering their races those are certainly the biggest um trail races and then there's a whole world of road running in in china which i'm not so sure of but uh something like the Shanghai marathon or
1: but it's um, it's big uh, enough business for the south china times to well, yeah, implore you to go out and, and work it all day long.
0: Well, yeah, the uh, the reason I got my job is because of the trail running scene in Hong Kong. It started off as quite a local, like, focused thing. And in the winter, I was spending every Saturday and Sunday going to the finish line of a race. But, uh, yeah, my job has certainly grown in scope. But uh, I rarely touch on on road running because it's so mammoth. I'm not sure if one person could do it. But uh, And also, I, I cover a lot of other sports. Bizarrely, CrossFit has come under my, like, title as well. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's huge. Excuse me, I've been to China a couple of times to run races, and, but uh, initially started just with this really intense, passionate trail running scene in Hong Kong.
1: So they have a pretty good CrossFit scene as well. Is it is it the CrossFit itself or is it like a CrossFit simulcron? Uh,
0: no, well, there's um the hits, the views that we get. We seem to just get so many from America when we cover CrossFit. So it's not so much like covering the local scene, but we cover like the CrossFit Games or or something like yeah, that. Like yeah. recently was a CrossFit Games. So my day flipped around. I was working from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. for four nights in a row covering the CrossFit Games Live. And uh, that even compared to trail running, which is an enormous uh, scene of followers. CrossFit just has this quite devoted, cult-esque following around yes, the yes. world. They really love to read about it and follow it. So when we worked that out, we are <laughs> started serving that community as well. Yeah. Outdoor and extreme, yeah. they seem to shoehorn that into me as extreme fitness. But, which is interesting and uh, fun to learn about yeah. and a, different, a different animal altogether
1: do you have any of the spartan races over there yet
0: yeah we have got a lot of spartan races as well that's big here the thing that i find about covering spartan races is um they don't necessarily have like or at least in hong kong somebody might identify as a trail runner and they do trail races but i don't think there's many people who identify as a spartan athlete It might be a sports person who's into crossfit or into trail running or into both and then they enter a one-off spartan race but they would rarely say like i'm a spartan athlete yeah. so there's two trail running facebook groups in hong kong both which have thousands of members there's not going to be a Spartan trail running group where people are following their heroes and watching the big races in america in europe and europe and that sort of thing so it's a different one to cover because you've got to find sort of more human stories of like a, somebody with a kid entering with their young kid or entering having Overcome something rather than purely from the athletic point of like a known name happens to win the race.
1: Yeah, I used to tell my kids that the only way I could get into runner's world is one of them was going to have to have a horrible fatal accident and I'd run yeah. for them. They didn't like that. Yeah, yeah. So what would be different if I showed up for a a fifty mile or a fifty k in uh, Hong Kong? What would be different for me?
0: um Well, the first thing that is universal across the world is uh like the community spirit but i think that is intensified in hong kong because of the proximity that everybody lives you know when you have a beer at the end of a trail race with uh, somebody you've uh, run with it's not like you've not like you've flown from all over the country and you have your beer and then you've got to catch your flight or drive home or get a train you all live within half an hour of each other and with half an hour of the end of the race so everybody gets to know each other even on a bigger level than uh, a race somewhere else in a bigger country because everybody yeah, just lives have. there. So you're seeing the same people every single race, which might be the case in another country where you get a real committed bunch of races. But it's like the average Joes, even those average Joes are just turning up the same every single race. And that community experience is therefore completely exaggerated and Hong Kong is awesome. And one of the ways that that manifests itself, which is very unique in the running scene, is we love team races. I didn't realize this was unique until I was talking to an American and he had no idea what I was on about it's not like a relay like four people run 25k each you run 100k as a team of four or right, as right. a team of two or a team of three and it's really different and over 100 the most famous one we have here is the Oxfam Trail Trailwalker which is our like original it's been going since the 1980s and that's a 100k race with uh, 5000 meters of elevation over uh, with four people
1: yeah
0: and it's got 4 5000 people right. entered And it's so much fun. But obviously there's difficult dynamics in that. Over 100 k everybody has a low at a different time. If you don't manage your expectations, you can get very frustrated with somebody when they're slowing you down. And then you can end up feeling very guilty when you're slowing people down. And that one's a free-for-all. They have like no rules basically whatsoever of what's allowed. And one of them you can tow people. So people have like they tie a rope around (laughs) their middle. (laughs) and, like, clip it to the other person's belt, and sort of dragging them uphill at 2 a.m. in the morning while they're like, <laughs> like heads their heads are lolling about, and they can barely, like, speak. Other ones have slightly stricter rules, but that is the famous one that even people in Hong Kong have never heard of trail running. If you say, oh, I'm doing a 100K race, they assume you mean, oh, the off-time trail walker. Well, well, no, actually, there's other 100K races. Now,
1: uh, did you say yeah. 1918? No, 1980s. Oh, 1980. Isn't there yeah. a famous um, race like that in Scotland?
0: Well, what, or a four-person Ireland? race? Yeah. Uh, Actually, I only got into trail running when I moved to Hong Kong, so there might well be. <laughs> when I eventually move back, I'll I forget definitely what it's called, running but in there's,
1: it, It's at least a two-person one, because I've heard yeah. stories of the same thing, right? What do you do when your partner crashes?
0: Yeah, right? exactly. But you know, yeah, that, that's, talk. I mean, aside from the trail walker, a lot of the races here will have that as an option. You can enter as a pair, or you can enter as a three. At the end of the season, there's a fancy dress one called Country of Origin. There's teams of three, and you're supposed to enter from where you have, like, three Canadians, three Scots, three... And people get in fancy dress. A few years ago, there was two Scottish teams, and they ended up in a six-person like Loch Ness monster suit, like, the yeah. <laughs> so, which is obviously a slightly less serious race. But I think that's pretty unique and pretty cool. And uh, I'd be pretty disappointed when I move to a different country and there's not so many team races. So
1: when I pull into the aid station, what am I going to get greeted? Am I going to have like some pickled octopus or something? Or
0: uh... um, yeah, that that's funny. I remember uh, who was it? There's a Chinese runner who's very, very good runner. I can't remember who it is. It might be Deng Gao Ming who's uh, been appearing on the international circuit a bit recently, but uh, I-, I might be wrong, but he turned up to uh, one of the European races and came into an aid station and was just flabbergasted that he couldn't get rice. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, what? And... Uh, nutrition especially if you're an elite it's very important to like stick to what you know and i think it was quite difficult to get his head around but apart from that it, i think it would be pretty similar there will be rice but there will also be some sandwiches some sweets like you know candy and uh, coke water a lot of tailwind for everyone has loved to drink tailwind um so I don't think you'd find it too different when you get into an aid station, but you definitely could have rice if you wanted it.
1: That's interesting because I've heard some other in some other places of the world where they have some really interesting stuff. It sounds like it's a very I don't I don't know what the the word is a very compact cultural phenomenon over there. Yeah, right, I'm where Hong everybody Kong, so. knows everybody, and it's all like part of a, a community.
0: Yeah, exactly. But, but exactly. like on hyperspeed. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that is the way to sum up Hong Kong in every aspect it is like normal life but like in fast forward and that's yep. when people come over here and everything they do they get into in an extreme way so you might arrive here and you you like a drink and a good night out and then by the end of the year like a mad party animal who's like going out 10 times a week <laughs> because it's accessible and right there and everybody's doing it or might be into running and then you come across and you end up like doing like five ultra marathons a year and our trail race every second weekend. There's no like middle ground to do anything. Everything is times 10 and it makes it an incredibly fun atmospheric place to live.
1: Yeah. I remember being there and I remember how frenetic it was. And I kind of felt like everybody was running a a scheme of some sort. Mm, Everybody was an operator and everybody wanted something, right? Yeah. uh, Yeah. It hasn't changed. That's good. That's good. That's what makes Hong Kong successful.
0: Yeah, well, it's changing in other stuff. ways, but yeah, it's it's it is a different place to where it was even a few years ago. But uh, there's always some constants that will, will keep it as Hong Kong that we know.
1: So, what do they do before they start the race? Do they uh play an anthem or anything? Does everybody uh give a good, uh, good rousing cheer? What do they do?
0: Yeah, I think you'll probably find that pretty similar to other trail races around the world. I just uh, go on the microphone, give everybody a cheer, everybody gives them a cheer back, and um, although the, I guess one of the best atmospheres I had that I've seen at, at a trail race was uh, this Oxfam trail walker, which I was mentioning before, the 100k four-person race. That is such an icon of our calendar, like a pillar of our calendar. To not have it would be unthinkable. Last year, it, it was on the same week as a pretty intense week of protests. It ramped up that week a lot, which would have made it dangerous, not obviously because the protesters weren't in the mountains, but you're allowed support runners and paces and mules and uh, and because there's five thousand people running and there's four uh, teams of four and each of them have friends coming and going, you know that's 10 fifteen thousand people traveling up and down to the trail over the whole weekend and with uh, the their trains on lockdown and that sort of thing, they decided to cancel it at the last minute but uh, wow. which was a big blow to the trail running community. So a few hundred people just turned up at 8 a.m. at the start line anyway and just ran it. And that start line was so much fun. Like it, Everybody was just like, we're doing something good in a time of difficulty. It wasn't like, we all show the protesters because certainly a lot of us like agree with their points. It was just like, in this tough time, we're still going to get out there and make sure that the Oxfam Trail walker Goes ahead in some capacity. I ran right. the first. This is, this is our thing. Okay. Yeah, I ran the first 15k with the teams, and like because like it wasn't necessarily a competition. Naturally, just this big group all matched into each other's pace, and when usually they would have spread out. Everybody was just yeah. running the same pace, and all the teams of four were sort of fluidly moving around, like running with one person and chatting. Oh, what's your aim? Cool. Oh, cool. So, like, hopefully you do well, and then they'd like sort of shift off to another people. Oh, so this is your first time running 100k? Or oh, good luck. And It was all this massive melee of people running and chatting. And that was one of the best atmospheres and that, like made me smile a lot. Yeah. It's a good story (laughs) of resilience. Yeah.
1: So uh, why don't we do this? I'll move you towards the exit now. And this has been really fascinating. I got to get back out to uh, to Asia at some point. I got to retire so I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Do my traveling. Exactly. Where, where can people find your work?
0: Uh, Well, I'm on the, uh, the South China morning post, which SEMP.com under the sports section. We, uh, That's where I do all of my stories for outdoor and extreme sports. You can also follow me on social media, I guess, uh, um, at adventureagnew.com. And there's another account you can follow. uh, In about six or seven months' time, a team and I are attempting to be the first people to row the Northwest Passage, which is the Arctic route linking Atlantic to the uh, Pacific. So if you want to follow us there, we're on at nwp twenty twenty one. Send
1: me the links and I'll I'll throw them in. Great, thanks. So so what have you learned from uh, your your seven years in Hong Kong?
0: Well, I've changed so much. It's covering trail running as I have. When I started, I didn't know a great deal about trail running. I got my job a bit randomly, and it's completely changed my bar of what is normal and capable i know that there were people out there who run hundreds of miles, and i knew that they were freaks and i just never assumed that i would be able to do that but now <laughs> at day in day out i'm speaking to these people who just do it and they're not necessarily like inspirational speakers and athletes from around the world who are there to inspire you they're just normal people who like shrug off like completely normal questions about oh well you just do it everybody can do it of course they can shrug yeah. And that is almost accidentally more inspirational than the idea where you can dig deep and push through and tattoo a mantra on your forearm. And uh, that has changed what I think I'm capable of. That's changed yep. my yep. own goals and aims so much in my entire lifestyle because, uh, well, what's that saying? You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I end up interviewing world record holders and long distance runners and ultra runners and every day of the week. So my average is completely moved up in terms of what my expectations of what is normal are. And that—that uh, that, that's yeah, really yeah. awesome.
1: It shatters your assumptions and, and yeah. breaks your, your frame of reference and forces you to uh, find a new edge. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we love about it. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go. It was a pleasure
0: talking to you. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. Yeah,
1: this is great. Thank you very much. Sometimes
0: it takes a third party to tell us what we already know.
1: Positive aspect. Why do you care about creating a positive environment? So I'm sure you've been in a situation, maybe recently, where someone just acts like a jerk for no reason. And it catches you by surprise. Let's say you're standing in line at the store or queuing, as the other English speakers would say. And someone cuts the queue. And maybe you smile and say something innocuous like, hey, the line starts back there. And that person snaps and swears and you feel the fight-or-flight hormones pumping through your system and all of a sudden a trip for some sardines and crackers and beer for your Netflix binge turns into a feral cage match and the rest of your day just gets worse and worse. So what happened there? Or maybe you yourself have been awake for hours working a problem at your day job. You have more work due tomorrow that you haven't done. Someone calls you to ask for something and you snap on them. Leave me alone. Can't you see I'm busy? And then the rest of your day just gets worse and worse. Or maybe you're on a call and you're getting grilled by somebody. The pressure of the situation and the fact that you don't feel safe. You feel attacked. You struggle to find words. You struggle to respond well. You can't find any good ideas. And then the rest of the day just gets worse and worse. What's going on there? Or maybe you wake up all warm and well-rested, and you have nothing pressing and no fires raging, and you sit down to write or work on something you've been putting off, and it feels effortless. And then the rest of the day just gets better and better. Why the difference? Or you stop for coffee, and the person in front of you drops their wallet. You chase them down and hand it to them. They thank you effusively, and the rest of your day just gets better. I like those days, don't you? So what's going on here? Well, it turns out how you act or react in any situation depends on how you have been primed. Let me say that a different way. The way you act, your ability to be creative, your ability to think, depends heavily on the mental state you're in. If you are overstressed, unhappy, tired, or feel at risk, your abilities to act well and perform well are diminished. In some ways, they're also predetermined. Your physiology will drive your psychology. So that person who cut you in line was already primed to have that negative interaction. And when you were tired and snapped, you were primed for a negative interaction. And when you were in a state of fear and didn't feel safe, you were primed to be unable to be creative and leverage your best self. But the opposite was true as well. The positive priming sets us up for more positive interactions. That's why we focus on changing our mindset, to a positive and abundant state. To some extent, you can create that environment or that state proactively and purposefully. And this is where creating a positive environment comes in, right? We talk about this all the time, specifically the environment you create for yourself and then the environment you create or at least influence for those around you. All those positive reinforcement techniques like meditation and affirmation and gratitude, all that stuff, they work because they put you in a physiological state that allows your best self to shine through. And that's why morning routines work and they're so important because that morning routine primes you for those first interactions of the day. So I'll give you another example. I've been working on my new podcast in my spare time, and it requires me to write creatively, and what I find is that I just can't switch gears from a stressful real-world situation to a creative context. If I go from a bad day at the office to trying to write, it's very hard to get into the flow. Can you change your state? Yes, but it's not always easy. It takes practice, and it's not instantaneous. Have you ever seen a person count to 10, or walk away from a bad meeting to take a walk. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to change their state before they do something out of control. That's why you need to have mental and physical triggers that can help you change your state. For instance, if you get out at lunch for a nice trail run in the sun, that's going to reset your mental and physical state. Maybe that's why we get such great ideas when we're out on the trail or doing anything that takes us away from the stress of the day-to-day. That's why you get those ideas in the shower, right? So uh, I did try to write this uh, in the shower, but the paper kept getting all soggy. From that point, from that first interaction, it's either a virtuous upward spiral or a negative downward spiral right? This is why it's so important. When you enter the situation, your attitude and state influence whether your interaction will be positive or negative. If you have a positive starting point, it raises the probability of a positive outcome, which then reinforces the state onwards and upwards, and your day gets better and better. If you come in at a negatively primed state, chances are you're going to have a negative interaction and the spiral is downward, and your day gets worse and worse. Why do you think they give you a mint, or a chocolate, or a fortune cookie with your bill? Because that unexpected treat causes a 21% increase in your tip. How do you put this into practice? First, you can do your best to create a state of abundance in your own head. Use whatever tools from your toolkit you like and try to enter each day mindfully in that abundant state, and pause before any interaction and make sure your intent is abundant, and try to develop triggers and practices to help you change your state when it becomes polluted. Second, you can influence your environment. You can influence others by showing up in your state of abundant positivity. Another good thing is to make it a practice to give unexpected gifts. And these don't have to be mints or chocolates. They can be praise and thanks and gratitude. You can give more compliments, especially to those you love. If you're a leader, make sure you're creating an environment where people feel safe. If people don't feel safe, they will not take chances or try anything new. So I hope this helps. Maybe you can try it out on yourself and your family over the holidays. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have run up the side of Mount Victoria. That's in Hong Kong, by the way. Through the end of episode 4-445 of the Run Run Live podcast. Don't worry, you can take the tram down, head out to Kowloon for some nice soup, Got a lot of gear to review for you today. (laughs) First, I invested in a new pair of Hokas, the Clifton 6, and I've only had them out a couple times. These are the road shoes. Uh, I love them, love them, love them, love them. Haven't done more than like eight-ish miles on the road in them, but they're super comfy and easy to run in, so thumbs up. Second thing I have been testing is my new light. And remember, I told you about this light. It is the keyword rich one I got from Amazon for 24 (sighs) bucks. West Biking Night Running Lights, USB rechargeable chest light with 90 degree adjustable beam angle, 500 lumens, waterproof, ultra bright safety warning lamp with reflective straps for runner jogger camping. Yes, Nabokov would not be proud. So anyhow, it works great. It's a USB, so no batteries. As long as you remember to charge it, it's super bright. And the main light sits in the middle of your chest, like a headlight on a train, and lights up the road or the trail without you having to hold anything. And it's got a red safety light on the back. The main light can be tilted up or down, and it has two brightness settings. And I the 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 brightness of this thing. It really lights it up, and I love the hands-free. The only thing I found that's minorly annoying is since it's in a fixed position on your chest, you have to turn your whole body if there's something not directly in front of you that you want to illuminate. <laughs> and that's funny because I got a typo here. I spelled illuminate-al, which I believe <laughs> is an actual word, illuminate. Does that mean to turn into aluminum? I don't know. I'll have to fix that. And since there's only one shoulder strap, it tends to cant to one side a bit. So it slides to one side because the strap's over one shoulder. So you end up having to grab it and adjust it every so often to bring it back to center. Uh, And if you over-rotate with your body, you'll find out about it because you'll make yourself seasick with this light swinging back and forth if you over-rotate your body. So, But I love that light. It's working great, and the trails keep me from falling down. The final thing that I bought was that pair of keyword-rich gloves I got, and I'm not going to read all the keywords. I'm using them, but they're nothing special. They're not warm enough, and I've already torn them up during a fall, so those were a fail, a bit of a fail. Ollie and I have kept on exploring the trails around town, and we've hooked in a couple of new ones. It's fun. We're out exploring. And it's funny because I went out on the trails after the storm and there was a couple of big trees down. So I wrote an email to the trail guys and say, hey, you know, because I have the map, right, where I ran. I have the map and you can see where it changes color where I have to stop to climb over or around a tree. And I send it to them. And they (laughs) like the next day those trees were gone. It was like the the magic spirits came out and removed these trees. I was like, wow, you guys are good. So my other big news, and where I'm going to blatantly ask for your help (laughs) over the next few weeks, is my new Apocalypse podcast. So I've rewritten and added to the narrative of the old man in the apocalypse. Those who've been listening through this year know I started this new series. when When we fell into the apocalypse in March with the pandemic, I started a new series. So I created a new podcast called After the Apocalypse. And I'm releasing it as a serial, and there will be a new chapter each week, and the whole season will be a coherent narrative arc. And this one is going to be up on a site called ACAST. I've put up a trailer as a placeholder, and the first episodes will be dropping in January, if all goes well. So if you go to aftertheapocalypse.me, you'll be directed to the ACAST site. I've hired a professional voice actor to be my narrator, and it sounds great. I had some artwork made, some original music, and I'm really excited about this project. So what I need from you, when the podcast is live, or even now if you're curious, go leave a review on one of the podcast sites and share it with your friends. Share the podcast with your friends. And I also am setting up a Patreon page. That's up as of yesterday. So if you'd like to help our survivors in the apocalypse, you can go there and become a patron, and that's uh, patreon.com slash aftertheapocalypse. Stay tuned for more, but I think this is going to resonate with fans of that genre. It's fun, anyhow. And you might ask, hey Chris, don't you have enough to do already? And you are right. I have no excuses for doing this. I am already too busy, but... I listen to these folks that I interview, right? These athletes. And you see this pattern where they just go, okay, I'm going to do something. And they pitch their work day lives and they do something big because they want to. And, you know, I wanted to do this. So I gave myself permission to do it, to do the best I can, to maybe not be perfect, but to let myself go ahead and do it without expectation for the sheer joy of it. And so, let me ask you, what is it that you always wanted to do but were too busy to do? Or maybe didn't want to fail? Or maybe were afraid of succeeding? I mean, you're not getting any younger, my friend. Pitch it all. Do something you want to do. You deserve it. You've been a good soldier. Now do something you want to do. Make the world a better place because of it. And so I'll leave you this week with a wonderful old... Anglo-Norman word? Despair. What does that mean? Well, the prefix D is away or from. Spare is from the Old French meaning hope. So despair means to lose hope. But that's not the cool part. The cool part is there's another form of this word that is seldom used. Respare. No kidding. That's a real word, even though Microsoft Word disagrees with me. And, of course, it means to restore hope. So use respare in a sentence. And I'll see you out there.
0: And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him
1: cry. And then we write about... What? Oh shit. <laughs>